Hiya love, and welcome to another episode of Mandatory Redistribution Party. In today's episode, I'm going to be chatting with the comedian Liberty Hodes. We're on episode 22 now, and me and Jack don't tend to talk about comedy or being comedians very much. So in this episode, I'd like to rectify that by putting a spotlight on someone who thinks is doing some very interesting and good work, my friend Liberty. I've known Liberty for about five years now, she's a delight. The comedy club she co-produces, the comedy night that passes the Bechdel test. I think it's a really interesting model that tries to not only give extra representation to women working in comedy, but also it flattens out a lot of pre-existing hierarchies that exist in the industry. Liberty's current work in progress show, Hot Commodity, is excellent. An art comedy production about the relationship between commodification and the mental health crisis. So I invited her around for a nice chat about everything from satisfaction culture to Reddit to the history of Tetris. Enjoy. So I think at the moment there's like a satisfying wave, uh, which is kind of endemic on the internet. So videos like soap cutting, slime, sounds, peeling things. Um, and like the idea of this being like the, the truest and most pure idea of satisfaction and that people watch these videos to attain this idea of almost like a what's that Chris that kind of Christian evangelical satisfaction yeah um, it's transcendental <laughs> yeah, transcendental <laughs> satisfaction but I have a theory that as our generations now are becoming more and more precarious and we don't have the option of stability and real real job satisfaction is rarer and rarer people are trying to kind of find these takeaway kind of uh instant satisfactions to kind of like right. wash them over yeah so you have a feeling of of calm and stability and well-being because you can't attain that from where you should be getting your satisfaction which is like work and life satisfaction is really hard to attain now because there's no no structure in, in place so i think satisfaction maybe there needs to be a genre a genre name for it satisfaction wave do you think that also counts for like I feel like there's also like a genre of video of people looking at how factories, like the machines make stuff. Like here's a machine pumping out like a million M&Ms. Yeah. And you see that process happen. How things are made. So you're saying that's like, that's a response to labor alienation. Like used to be the case that someone would build a chair. Oh, I've made a chair. I feel feel absolutely smashing. Oh, I had a really good day. But now I'll watch a video of someone else building a chair. I'll watch a video of a machine building a chair. We kind of uh, take a step back from, we kind of become these kind of, I don't know, vegetable states with satisfaction pumped into us rather than leaving our form to uh, attain satisfaction. So we don't, we don't, we don't go to satisfaction anymore. Satisfaction comes to us. And we're kind of in our chair. I've seen um, like gifts of illustrators who've made like, you know, non-real depictions of satisfaction. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, maybe I've described that really oddly. Like someone who has made like animated illustrations of just things fitting neatly into containers or shapes. Disgusting. Or things like tessellating perfectly. But they're not even real. They're like, <laughs> they're, oh. just, they're just illustrations. So it's like a, removing another layer between achieving a real spiritual satisfaction. <laughs> That's incredible. But there was always Tetris. Maybe Tetris is the counter argument. Yeah. Because Tetris in the 80s was designed for shapes to fit together satisfying. But also they had 
don't know. They had Soviet overtones though, right? Because that, do you know Tetris started out its life as, um, it was like a pattern recognition test for people that was going into some forms of the armed service in the Soviet Union. I had no idea. Yeah, so Tetris. Whoa. So like that, you know, the theme music that everyone knows, which is like Tetris Music C, that's actually an old Russian folk song that was just appropriated for the, like you can find, it's, it's a song about some guy who is in love with one of the female fishmongers and it's like this proper old Russian folk song. So almost like a fishwife's tale. Mm. And then that got Ooh. turned into this like 8-bit music for the Game Boy version. and um, And apparently like, the Soviet Union like seized the copyright for this game off this guy. I mean, they probably wouldn't, within the time, they wouldn't even see that as seizure. It's like, you've made this and now this will be appropriated for these other means. That's yeah incredible. I had absolutely no idea that it originates from folk song. And I could, I'm going to listen to that as soon as, as soon as we're not doing this. I'm going to yeah, listen to <laughs> That's, I had no idea. So I guess it's like, a pre well, um, an alternative to capitalist Soviet satisfaction. <laughs> yeah, I like. I think like this is always said tongue in cheek, but the idea of Tetris actually being about like interpersonal conformity. Listen, you might be an L piece, or you might be like this piece with like a tetromino coming out your side, but you could all fit together to make one powerful structure. Oh. Although a lot of us at the bottom are disappearing. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. And like the uniform nature of it as well. Very yeah. Soviet. I've never considered that. And I see like, let's say you, let's say you say that's the archetypal Soviet abstracted satisfaction. Mm. So it's not like the satisfaction of genuinely making something and bringing you life satisfaction. You're arranging pieces in a, a digital board. So you, and then combine that with like, the capitalist Western version would be like, what's that one where you like? You've got to you've got to line up gems or move colours around. And Candy just, Crush. Candy Crush. Candy Crush <gasps> is is the Western one. Because I'd say the, oh. the, the key thing is that Candy Crush doesn't really rely on the same level of concentration. It's got higher production values, but arguably less character. Yeah, and it's more accessible as well. I think Tetris is actually quite hard. Like Tetris is fun for a bit, but then it gets hard quite quickly. It's frustrating because you have to work at it like yeah. like a society. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas Candy Crush is like, I don't think it gets harder as you go. I've, I've not played it, but I don't believe it gets harder as you go further. You just continue to do the same thing. And it has adverts. Yeah. But Tetris is fairly, uh, it, it's kind of ubiquitous, like... I don't know. It kind of feels like it belongs to the people Tetris. I don't know who owns Tetris. There is a guy. Well, this is what I said. Like, there was a guy who made it, but then it got, like, seized by the state. So, so, so does so it Gorbachev, still belong? <laughs> Gorbachev oh my God. owns Tetris, technically, but so I don't know. Tetris is, like, state-issued satisfaction. Yeah. is really the story of two men, Alexei Payitnov and Vladimir Pokilko. Payitnov was a researcher and computer engineer, allegedly working on early prototypes of speech recognition software. And if rumours were to be believed, this software was intended to be used by the KGB for bugging and wiretapping. In the 80s, you couldn't practically record continuously. You'd need a heck of a lot of tape. So much so that your wiretap may not be sufficiently inconspicuous. So software that could listen out for particular keywords and hit record on perceived enemies of the state could go a long way. Working at the Academy of Science, Pyitnov would make little games and puzzle softwares in his downtime. One such game, based on the Pentomato toys, little physical block puzzles of interlocking shapes that can be combined to make a larger shape, normally a cube, he made with the help of his friend, Vladimir Pokilko, a clinical psychologist specialising in human-computer interaction. The game was called Tetris, a portmanteau of Tetromino, the name for the pieces used in the game, and Tennis. Uh, I don't know how the tennis thing fits in. That confused me too, don't worry. It was Bakilko who used Tetris in his clinical psychology 
to test spatial awareness reactions. Anyone who could go on to do a T-spin got a perfect bill of health. Pietnov created lots of other games that no one really now remembers, including a sequel to Tetris, which has been forgotten by time. It's called Weltris, and it moves the game into 3D. Uh, Weltris is very confusing, and I'm going to try and explain it, but you'll really have to put in some effort with spatial imaging to try and make this work in your own head. So imagine a cube. We're going to remove one of the sides of the cube. That cube's got five sides remaining, and we're going to look into this cube from the side that we've removed. So we're looking now into the interior of a hollow cube. There is a flat square plane facing you from the opposing side of the cube, and the remaining four sides are four walls sloping down from the top, bottom, left and right that intersect with that plane. That is the game board of Weltris. Tetrominoes are then going to appear in 2D, falling down the walls of the game board as though each of those walls are in themselves Tetris boards that we're familiar from the Game Boy. Now, those tetrominoes will fall down the walls, but then come to rest within the grid of the opposing plane. Are you following? I expect not. I expect not. Um, completed rows or columns then, which appear in the opposing boards, will still disappear like they do in Tetris. But now the tetrominoes can appear from any cardinal direction. Uh, it's very confusing. Uh, I strongly recommend you uh, look it up rather than uh, rely on my description. The box art for the game had a massive hammer and sickle on the front. It did not sell well. And if you really want to have your mind blown, you need to look up 3D Tetris for the Virtual Boy. They also developed a game called The Elfish, one of the earliest virtual fish tank simulators, which in 1996 was declared the 13th worst video game in the world. Now, being citizens of the Soviet Union, they were not realistically able to export or make money from their invention. And given it was made using the facilities of the Academy of Science, the intellectual property of Tetris was transferred to and owned by the state. However, it was also around this time that a deal was made with an American firm and the game was released commercially in America and then eventually the world. It did incredibly well. Now, almost all the reporting I see in this story feels like it gets a bit ideological here because it always frames these two as these frustrated, furious, robbed individuals. And yet that's not what really comes out of their mouths when you read interviews with them. In actual interviews, it very rarely comes up. And while I think it would be perfectly reasonable in 1980s Soviet Union, which at the time was a crumbling project soon to fall, you may be able to look over at Silicon Valley where your game's raking in lots of money and imagine a different and better life that you can have for yourself and your family. I can understand that instinct. But it always seems to be projected onto the creators and it's never something articulated by them. However, what is true is that they did move to Silicon Valley after the fall of the Soviet Union. And this is where the manifest destiny capitalist freedom story starts to take a really dark turn. Pietnov founded the Tetris Company, secured himself as the intellectual copyright owner of Tetris, and began turning over a huge profit, making more games for America and Japan. Pokilko, however, despite being credited as and widely understood to be the co-creator of Tetris, was not cut into the shares and was not provided any royalties by the Tetris company. Still managing Animatech, the company that he and Pietnov founded together in Moscow, but unable to trade on Tetris or any of Tetris-related products, they began to fall into ruin. The other games owned by Animatech that he and Pietnov made were wildly unpopular. No one wanted Elfish or Faces, the game which is basically Tetris, but the pieces are the pieces of a face and you need to arrange them together. Very, it's a very bad game. In 1999, less than three years after Pietnov had founded the Tetris company, Vladimir Pahilko was found dead along with his wife and two children in part of a murder-suicide. The police discovered a suicide note in his house. It read, I've been eaten alive. Vladimir, just remember that I am exist. The devil. The music we know as the Tetris music comes from a Russian folk song called Korobiniki. The Korobiniki were pre-revolutionary peddlers who sold fabric, books and haberdashery from small trays. 
In Nikolai Nekrasov's poem from which the song is adapted, the Korobaniki trader seduces a peasant girl by offering her gifts from his tray in return for a kiss and its implied, probably sexual favours. She rejects all but one of his gifts, a turquoise ring, reasoning that having his wares but having not him would be unbearable. The next morning he pledges to marry her after he returns from the day's trading. The song ends here, but the poem concludes with the peddler being robbed and killed by a forest ranger that he asks for directions after an auspiciously successful day's trading at the market. Have you ever found on YouTube there's Google test videos? And it was on big... I think it must, I must have found them through... Maybe it was the 14 Times or some mystery forums. But it's just these test videos which are just weird different tones. And there was conspiracy theories that it was aliens. But it turns out it's just Google testing. You mean WebDriver Torso? What's WebDriver Torso? Is that what that... So the name of the thing is WebDriver Torso... And it was always two shapes, one red rectangle, one blue rectangle, always different sizes, always different positions, and then about eight to nine random tones. And it uploaded like a video every five hours on the hour for like years and years and years and years. Um, But people thought, because when everyone was trying to work out what this is, and people uncovered it, quest to understand it. And the only thing that people could think of was um, something called number stations. And number stations existed at different times in the 20th century. And they were radio stations that would just broadcast random tones in a loop pretty much forever. Why is that scary? Because it's not, there's nothing threatening about it. But why does that, why do I feel now a little bit paralyzed with fear all the way down? Just my arms are very scared right now. I think thinking about tones. I think it's the sense that something might be trying to communicate and like the the sense of mystery around it. I had a real mysterious moment a couple of months ago. Um, I live in a room with a balcony. So the only, I'm not showing off, it's just true. So I've got a, a balcony, it's my only window, a door. Uh-huh. Um, and it was obviously a really hot summer. So one night, I think it was one of the last few hot days, I sat with my door slightly ajar because otherwise I would have died. I would have turned into a piece of, I don't know, a crisp or a piece of potpourri. So I, I kept my, my window open and then I was awoken in the middle of the night by like a scuttling under my bed. Oh, no, no. And I sat up and I was like, it's a pigeon. I quite like pigeons. So I looked under my bed and something orange, like, screeched out. Screech isn't the right word. Something orange dashed out of my room. Yeah. And I'll never know what it was. It must be, it has to be a cat. But what oh. if it was something better? <laughs> <laughs> like a flame. A flame. <laughs> a ghost. Definitely not a ghost. I thought maybe a squirrel. Um, I thought maybe a fox, but I don't think foxes could get up to my room without a lot, well, a stairs. Yeah. Um, but that was really scary. Yeah, that sounds quite scary. It was really good though. I was very thrilled. Like it was that good kind of scary where you're excited because yeah, you're scared. Style. Yeah, but I think if I was hearing knocks and patterns and I felt something was trying to get through to me, I would be very upset. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be excited. Or yeah. sleep. Have you ever had sleep paralysis? I haven't. Oh, it's really good. I've woken up a lot and not understood what the clothes horse was and that's scared me. Clothes horse is quite tall compared to me laying down. Really quite spooky sometimes. Yeah. Because its shape is disguised by whatever clothes I happen to have put on it. So it just looks like a thing. I don't know. I don't know this thing. And also if it's clothes, I guess it kind of resembles some distorted human shape. Uh, I don't know. If a human just wore clothes by hanging loads of shirts over his arms. (laughs) I don't know if I'd feel threatened by that guy. I used to hallucinate quite a bit. So once, when I, I think in my first couple of weeks in living in London, when I was in student halls, I... I woke up and I well, I hope I hallucinated my friend Samson sat under my desk um, but he vanished so I assume and he, it wasn't that he died he was still alive yeah and I 
once hallucinated my friend Cedric was in my house and he came and said hello and then I got up in the morning and I asked my other house well my housemate at the time oh when did Cedric leave he was like he was never here again not dead you've got friends called Samson and Cedric I went to art school everyone's called that's <laughs> that's not the beginning of it I got <laughs> I've got all sorts I also have hallucinated my mum coming and stroking my hair when yeah. I've been in completely different cities are these things ever nice I think we all naturally like sleeping is hallucinating and it's like a dream state, but where you're kind of, your eyes are open. So you're just applying the hallucinations onto your environment, but you okay. can be paralyzed. I, I liked the bits where I had my head stroked by my mum, but I didn't like not being able to move, but I never had the classic woman sat on your chest. Yeah. That's a big one, isn't it? Yeah. And it's, it dates back in all sorts of art through time, but I've never had that. It was always someone's it just come to say hello mm-hmm. and it turns out they weren't there. I'm sad you've not had any kind of sleep paralysis. Oh, it's... I don't want to join in with everything because I want <laughs> certain mysteries in my life. And it might happen to you late in life and you might be pleased then that you yeah. have a go. Because for years I was reading about sleep paralysis and I wanted desperately for it to happen. And then I remember the day it did happen. I was so excited Yippee! (laughs) (laughs) It's finally, it's happened to me. Wow. Yeah. Finally become a woman. (laughs) (laughs) In lieu of a bat mitzvah, I had a hallucination. Sounds like you've had some of the better ones you can have. I think a lot of people have them as like waking nightmares. I just remembered I have had one that was a waking nightmare. Uh Uh-oh. I completely forgot. Once I woke up paralysed, kind of arched, and my head yeah. was kind of back and I could see out of the corner of my eye, but I was completely couldn't move other than my eyes. And I could see like some hair and I could hear dripping and a little girl crying. You could hear it, but you couldn't see it. I could see her hair. Oh. So like the top of her head. Oh, that's fucked. Like, but moving. Like, I hate that. I yeah, hate what it was... you just said. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I hate that you said that. That got me excited though, because you know when I woke up, I was like, "That was that was really good sleep paralysis. Like yeah. that was a really good top like, tier. It conforms to my idea of what it's supposed to yeah, be. Yeah, like. rather than my mum just stroking me on the head. Yeah, it's you feel like a pretender having nice gentle ones. Yeah. Now you can join the support groups. That's like, yeah. I've had a fucking traumatic one. I can go on Reddit. Yeah, I've never been on Reddit actually. I wouldn't, wouldn't recommend it. Really? What's what is it? I Reddit, yeah, I don't. <laughs> Reddit has taken over the, the the need that anyone would ever have to make a forum, so anyone could just make their own forum about anything. But they're all connected on this site called Reddit. So a Reddit or a subreddit is just what we would have called in the day a forum, and uh-huh. so people just post and make threads and and obviously because it's sort of online and it's a replacement for forums, anyone who's got like weird fringe lifestyles or beliefs or stuff like that. They end up on Reddit as well. So incels were one of the big ones where you could go on Reddit and discover them long before they became uh, murderers. Wow. It, the incels a... have their own subreddit. Yeah. And that's where like a lot of them ended up getting radicalized because within the incel community, they then split off into their own different things, depending on which colored pill they'd taken. So the red pill, <gasps> another, you're aware of what the red pill. Yeah. The matrix. To. Yeah. But the red pill within like MRA culture oh no okay so the red point mra culture is when you take the red pill which in the matrix is to learn the truth and the blue pill is i'm gonna go back home and do coding in my room (laughs) the red pill is learning the truth but the truth to mras is that some basically a misogynistic form of evolutionary psychology which is that women want strong men and they're just bitches you're out to go and try and get the best seed or whatever and what yeah. <laughs> who cares who that's, cares that sounds a good strat <laughs> <laughs> what's wrong with wanting quality seed <laughs> and so that is a foundational belief when you connect that with incels and incels um and incels originally going way back when to when this was like a really burgeoning subculture there was just involuntary celibate as people who just couldn't find themselves in the lifestyle or culture of sex for reasons they didn't necessarily understand, but a lot of them like believed they were like ugly or unattractive and had very low self-esteem. 
and that was a support group. But when a faction of that who were like, some of them got so ups- so upset by it, they became really nihilistic and angry and angry at women. And when they combined that with the red pill, then they became like almost like a pseudo political group where they hated women as a, like a, almost like a political stance. Fair, no, no, that's awful. Then that sort of splintered. So there were people like going. Yeah, women are just like animals. We're also animals and we need to fuck. So we just need to use any method we can to try and fuck them and get them to fuck us. And so like then they get really heavy into like pickup artistry and stuff. But then some incels have actually done mass shootings now because that's what that's led to. And then there's also the black pill route, which is it's like the nihilism route. So they've actually like invented their own pill colours. And black pilling is there's almost like two versions of ways you can go down this path. One is men going on their own, which is I am now sort of voluntary celibate. I have actually seen this lifestyle for the corrupt, horrible, like Bosch painting a hellscape that it is. And I'm just not going to have sex. So now I'm sort of, a, I'm a vol cell. Vol cell. Vol cells are real. They're another chapter. Oh, so in is, oh, I, I very stupidly, didn't realise that incels just shortened involuntary sub. I was yeah. I was thinking incel sounds a bit like a computer and they right. like to play on computers. <laughs> well, apparently they originally shortened it to invercel, but with in their community they said that sounded too much like imbecile. So they dropped the V in the <laughs> oh, incel. If they hadn't realised, that would be so wonderful. And then there's the other black pill, which is like full nihilism. And then I, I don't know which one's has the most violent tendencies because they're all sort of this strange spectrum which is like a poisonous smog there's only someone you can be in there and like come out and be healthy so I only know like very fragmenting amounts about what these individual communities think uh, but the black pill is like full liners I'm like nothing can ever be good for me I am inferior my genes are inferior I am one of life's losers and that's built into my code are they do they have nice behaviour, those ones? Are they like, oh, what? give up? <laughs> are they the good incels? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Are there any incels. nice incels who are just, oh, no one wants to have sex with me. Oh, well, <laughs> I'll just I'll just be nice to women and oh, see them as my friend. You gentle creature. No, they are not, actually. Oh, this is fascinating that there's this, this like, language and, and code among, like, how they categorise yeah. themselves. And I think Reddit's a part of that because... Because you can make, let's say you're in a community and you're just talking about pogs, you know, right? Let's just take it something really benign. Back to my comfort zone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like you have this just regional based dispute about the rules of pogs. You just go and make another pogs forum called Pogs 2. And so like <laughs> splitting up and factionalizing is almost like built into the culture of Reddit. So then, I mean, it's so, it, it feels so right that, well, not right, because it's obviously all terribly, terribly wrong. But it does seem appropriate that they're using the Matrix as a as a point of reference. Maybe that's where it all began. I wonder if they all started on 4chan and then went on to Reddit. But I'm only still acutely aware of 4chan. 4chan, I don't think I'm even qualified to give you like a little debrief of what 4chan's all about. But it does share like a lot of very basic mechanical differences in that you're always anonymous. So 4chan is often a lot of people like participating in big collectivized events. But within it, everyone's anonymous. That's why the anonymous Guy Fawkes mask types, <gasps> they've come from 4chan culture because they're used to all having no individual identities because the, the, the manner in which they post the content doesn't allow it. I've seen them do real-life demonstrations. Yeah, but they went big on... Um, oh, there was that American and maybe EU anti-internet privacy laws where SOPA or PIPA, and it was going to force IP holders to turn over stuff and it would allow increased privatisation and private ownership of different swathes of the internet. Anonymous went big on like opposing that. That was like a time when they were actually doing like some quite benign, decent stuff. So fascinating that they also use V for Vendetta as their like point of departure aesthetically. Or is that, does that uh, go before V for Vendetta? No, they, they use they... the same masks. Well, similar. I think 4chan probably existed before V for Vendetta, but Anonymous as a... Uh, like a pressure group, if you'd call them a pressure group. When that happened, they adopted the Guy Fawkes mask pretty quick. I guess it's because, like, it is... <laughs> FIFA Vendetta is about as political as you can get and still be accepted by a lot of 14-year-old, like, online edgelords. It's like, wow, this is mind-blowing. <laughs> wow. 
and then they just completely do that in about three yeah. years. Well, I think if they're using it for good, because I feel like such a nano, I don't know. I remember Habba Hotel. That was my online They did forum. lots of stuff on Habba Hotel. They did, did like they? a lot of real racist stuff on Habba Hotel. Oh, no. It sounds like they're baddies as well. Who's oh, Anonymous. Good? Sorry, I, I thought there was a shared understanding that Anonymous is broadly bad. Oh, no, I didn't know. Anonymous is, so it's come from 4chan, so it's a lot of like teenage ed- edgelords. So their politics is like Pepe the Frog memes. Like 4chan was the proving grounds that would eventually sow the seeds of what would become the old right. That's not to say that everyone who has been associated with 4chan is necessarily old right or whatever, but it was a place where a lot of people could just post a lot of Nazi or racist or overtly fascist or even child pornography because there was just no reg- it was just a complete Wild West forum. And mm. it caused a lot of people to like ferment and find these alternative. You're 14, you're American, you hate your dad, <laughs> yeah, you hate school, you're looking for an alternative explanation of the world. And yeah, why not? Like, Nazi-informed race nationalism. Is there nothing pure? Only Club Penguin and... Uh, Club Penguin's pure. Um, the BBC, when I was young, they had a forum for children. Yeah. So you could make friends on this forum. I was spending hours on it. But you weren't allowed, obviously for good reason, you weren't allowed to exchange any, it was moderated, and you weren't allowed to exchange any kind of um, any kind of information with these people. So you could talk to them, but they couldn't become your friends. And that's like a lonely child who really yeah. did struggle with like making friends. I, I kind of would make friends and then never get to talk to them again. I think what's very interesting about our generation is like the ways in which we've met different friends through different like one of my best friends I met on Vampire Freaks <laughs> what's Vampire Freaks? oh my goodness you were on Vampire Freaks that surprises me that was a MySpace for goths in the early like 2000s goths I'd say like if I'm looking at like teenage subcultures or like I need I don't know I need someone to convey a message <laughs> I'd pick a goth yeah I think it's a really earnest really earnest movement yeah, there's a lot of sincerity to being a goth. You can't be a goth with this kind of ironic detachment. No, you're a goth. <laughs> and I get a thrill now when I see a goth because you don't... There is arguably... I mean, I'm not young enough to know, but I would say nearly no youth subcultures now because everything's homogenised. Whilst I'm not young, I think people... Uh, so I've done like a lot of writing about this idea that whilst we don't... So now... There aren't... You might watch videos from the 80s and see someone being, like, dressed like Bowie and be like, I'm a Bowie. We still... It's the same mentality, but I think people find that music, which tends to be, like, the root of subculture historically in, like, British alternative subculture, that doesn't tend to be, like, the... what we apply that mentality to now. So I think now it tends to be more people identify with uh, franchises. So... Like, I like Harry Potter, I like Game of Thrones. Houses within those franchises. But I think there are definitely, like, bands that people like, and I'm sure there's still alternative culture, but there's no... I think, like, the last one that I really remember maybe was Scene Kids. Or maybe I'm just not young anymore. Scene Kids was my era, though. Yeah, Scene that was... Scene was just starting as I was, like, teenager. I, I... It was around... That was the last one that I really noticed in terms of everyone's sort of... But isn't that one of the last ones just before you like left that chapter of your life? Yeah, I think I need to speak to some teenagers. But I wonder if it's because of the internet is that now you can kind of pick and choose what you like and it's not you don't just sort of buy the same magazines as people. But I think people do the same. I mean, there's definitely like tribes of people. So I don't know, people who go to the gym on Instagram (laughs) I don't know I sound really old I think there's definitely been a decline in like alternative youth culture influencing mainstream culture so kind of things like punk started very small and then it became the big mainstream culture and like Uh goth I think it mostly has to do with choice in the internet so I remember at school it would be like things would be very kind of uh, polarised so you'd be a goth or you'd be like, I mean, a Chava, but in Newcastle, it's like essentially, yeah, yeah, yeah. essentially like it was 
probably more of a class clash before we were educated in politics. I think maybe I'm not educated enough in like what goes on with young people now to make an absolute statement more than sort of like a, a very withdrawn observation. Yeah. Is that I don't see people dressed. There doesn't seem to be like the performance of subculture in the way there used to be. There was almost like a, a, a layer of drag being a goth or yeah. being a scene kid. I mean, people do wear a lot of makeup now, but it tends to be universal. I think every city had this area where all the slightly alternative teenagers would just <gasps> be on a weekend. Did you as well? Every, every city did. Every, I've had this conversation with uh, loads of people. So this is so interesting. because In Birmingham, there was... Um, basically, we all knew it as Pigeon Park, but it was called St. <laughs> Philip's Place. It was, it was the grounds and graveyard surrounding this very central church in the middle of Birmingham. And everyone would tend to congregate there. I don't know why, to the point where like the, the police kept getting involved to try and chuck people out because it became intimidating. <laughs> it became intimidating if people just wanted to use this park as a cut through. Like a lot of people were underage drinking or just, just straight drinking uh, while being overage. There was the goths over there, the sink kids over here. Indies tended not to touch it. Indies would go down to like Solly Hall. Ah! <laughs> and people would be playing music or there'd be like some like circus skills guys. But it was really like really segregated. It was almost like that idea of um, an American high school cafeteria. Where it's like those guys are over there, those guys are over there, those yes. guys are over there. But the weekend version. We yeah. had that we had the green, known to people who weren't alternative as the hippie green, because if yeah. you weren't if you were kind of any alternative subculture, you were just a hippie. That's yeah. what you'd be referred to. And it was exactly the same. It was almost like a kind of wide lensed, incredibly detailed painting of underage drinking men who refer to themselves as an Uncle Kev who are like 28 with like 14-year-old girls sitting on their knee. True. Dis- disgusting. Uh, lots of, yeah, lots of underage drinking. Lots of me snogging any boy with long hair, to be yeah. quite honest. But you'd go on a Saturday. You'd go home at four o'clock for your tea. You might go on a Sunday as well, but there'd be nowhere near as many people. The, the, the green was for Saturdays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The green was definitely for Saturdays. <laughs> Yeah, we had a guy called, um, he was known colloquially as Satan. Ah! And he got a pentagram scar tattoo on the back of his bald head. And the priest hated him because he'd somehow managed to find a way to go under the paving slabs <laughs> and change the water pressure in the church. <laughs> That's incredible. Just like yeah. the real Satan would do. Yeah, it was really funny to be like, what's the priest doing? Oh, he's just going after Satan again. Did everyone <laughs> And Satan would just run away when the priest came out. <laughs> He sounds like a slippery little thing. He was a big Satan. guy. Satan. Oh, he yeah. sounds quite like Satan's doing the He was like the untitled goose for the uh, <laughs> for the church. He would just prank the priest and then run away. You should tell me more about the show you're doing called Hot Commodity. It's a multimedia Frankenstein mix of live art, lecture, maybe a little bit funny, but not a comedy show. But it's all about the links between mental health problems, um, the epidemic of mental health problems at the moment and capitalism. So it's, yeah, it kind of looks a lot at self-care and um, the idea of capitalising on on fear. Um, so that kind of also links into like environmental concerns and greenwashing. But it's still, it's a big work in progress. I think it's going to take me five years to finish it. Or maybe it's very big. Yeah, huge scope for a show. I wonder if it might just be five different shows that I do with like five. Like it just keeps changing. Like the idea of like if you repair a chair, like you replace the legs, and then the rest of the chair breaks, and you replace that. Is mm-hmm. is it still the same chair? Yeah, I, I think it, in terms of genre, I really struggle to define what it is. What is it that you're trying to convey, or what is it that you believe? that you're trying to put into the show about the relationship between mental health, commodification and capitalism? I think rather, I think what I found quite helpful is to kind of abandon the stance of it being me telling you how it is, um, or my opinion on how it is, rather than like presenting suggestions and showing evidence, but also creating, there's lots of, 
video working, which is like jammed up bits of, of YouTube videos to kind of demonstrate things. But also I, I'm trying to make it less depressing. I think it's tough when trying to turn any of this capitalism exploration into performance to just not allow it to be depressing. Mm. Like, yeah. Do you ever get the feeling that if you were to make it, if there's too much levity, you're like not really making the point you're trying to make? It's really, really hard. I think that's what I'm trying to find the balance between. Is because like there have been shows where it's kind of felt so depressing that no one's even said well done afterwards. And that's what you say to people even when they've done bad. Yeah. People are just kind of left quietly and sad. But I think I'm trying to, in terms of like for the value of entertainment, create an arc of different feelings to kind of protect the audience from feeling sad because that's not the efficiency. I think what I'd like to do is kind of convey things that people are already thinking so that people can go, oh, I think about that all the time. Or like maybe plant some seeds in people's heads so they can be like, oh, I can think about this now. But also I think I do throw in some like alternative suggestions for or like how to make the most of the state that we're in and how to kind of like use your own like subjectivity as a person, kind of like localize it so that you don't feel like you're, you know, in order to look after yourself, you have to buy lots of things or, yeah, so you don't feel kind of indebted to capitalism to solve your problems. I'm a big fan of the comedy night that you run in Newcastle. Oh, Oh, and London as well. Yeah, mostly Newcastle, sometimes London. Yeah, Uh, the comedy night that passes the Bechdel test. Yeah, oh, it's my favourite thing to do. Like, I think it's almost quite radical the way that you've made it work. It's not just that it's a... a night that focuses on female representation, the fact that it's neither a new material night, nor is it got the traditional structure of a comedy night, which for our listeners, if you're not familiar, comedy nights can broadly be put into two camps. You've got your showcase nights, we've got like a big headliner who's probably been on the TV, and then you've got like some smaller people doing different spots in between. There's like a very clear hierarchy and structure within it. And then you've got new material nights, which... Um, People don't really pay that much money. Comics don't really get that much, if any, money. And it's just sort of a proving grounds, like a friendly space to try new stuff out. Whereas yours is in the middle ground because you're you're actively curating the night. Mm. You're picking people you want, but you're not allowing there to be any hierarchy between the different acts. And you're still charging people to come there so that you can pay the performers. And I don't think I know many of the nights that run on such a egalitarian basis. And yet it's still so successful. Yeah, it's. I think it's the balance that we started with, so we've not really had to play around with it. Um, um, so we pay ourselves for our spots, the same as everyone else, but nothing more. So, it. But it is quite nice because we really do just do it for the love. And I think as well, yeah, we don't. We like to sort of. Whilst it's like a traditionally a comedy night, and that's the discipline where we most, both of us, most kind of identify with. We don't exclusively book comedians we like any kind of performance which is in within the spectrum of funny yeah um and whilst it's mostly women um and non-binary people uh or basically anyone who's not a cis man we do welcome like the occasional weirdo cis men who we kind of will invite rather than the other way around but and I'm very grateful for that yes we love you were one of <laughs> one of our best we always thought it would be very funny to do um, an all male lineup as a as a joke, but some of the some of our audience I think would be, would not appreciate it. They wow. get some some people. Yeah, I don't think because I'm imagining a lot of your audiences are so loyal because they know this is a space that no one's gonna be a fucking prick at. Yeah, it's such a lovely night. Yeah, I think it's a really great. I really like having new acts because it's no one's even if they don't find you dead funny, they're still gonna laugh to make you feel. Yeah. Like you could get somewhere with it being funny. They'll not, it's not like a a comedy club where people aren't going to laugh to show you that they don't like you because everyone wants you to do well. Yeah. Um, And like, we want like a shared feeling of success. So no one ever really dies, which is nice. Maybe a bit of a bubble. I think it's good though. Like. It's lovely. The way, like the, the way I just mentioned, like the way comedy normally works is like, let's say someone off the telly or someone who's just got a Netflix specialist headline in. It sort of isn't that great for any of the other acts because everyone's there to see that person. Mm. You're not them. <laughs> so I've got to wait through you to see the person I want to see. 
Whereas every night that I do where people have bought into what the concept of the night is, yeah, it's so nice because people are like, and now what thing am I going to see? And they're attentive to everything because what they've come to see is this spectacle, the entirety of it. And whereas not having this kind of hierarchy, the idea of there being this is the headliner it is sort of saying, well, that's what you've paid to see. And all of this stuff's just here, just sort of an obstacle to that. Yeah, I like the, I don't, I don't think there was ever a kind of, we never intended to, to be able to like have a hierarchy in terms of like um, professionals at the end. Mm-hmm. We do tend to structure the night in terms of like the energy of the acts. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that might be part of experience, but some of, sometimes it might be just about the nature of what they do. Or like sometimes we, a good structure that I really enjoy is we do, is almost like a graph for weirdness. So we, it just gets weirder as the night, mm-hmm. like it defies, it, it bends away from the genre of comedy more and more as the night goes on. I mm-hmm. quite like that where it kind of descends into kind of his, hysteria and it's like <laughs> strange things happen. I love it. Yeah. And it's, I think the thing that it's just like universal, it's just friend, like friendship. It's like me and Lauren are best mates and we weren't actually like, we met and immediately decided to do a comedy night. And that's how we became best friends was through doing a comedy night. So right. Everyone's a winner, except people who want to be best friends with Lauren. Now I'm sure she has room for more friends than me. <laughs> yeah. I think your way of emceeing is really good. There's something really calm and warm about it. It obviously is like harking after the very masculine, over-the-top, high-energy emceeing that you'll get everywhere else. Mm. But there's just something quite just nice and confident and you're hanging out with your friend that makes you feel a different kind of warmth than someone managing to like get a zinger out of the audience in the first five minutes yeah what I really love about mine and Lauren's work together is it is not about ego like I think ego sort of goes out the window and it's just friendship so it's kind of I think she's used as a description on posters just live on stage friendship Mm -hmm. and I'd like to imagine that it would be something like watching Daria or Ghost World or like these things that I grew up watching where it's just like two weird art girls having a chat in quite a monotone voice yeah (laughs) (laughs) and it was never deliberate because that's all we can do because we we're not actors we're not big character comedians like we do just talk really slow in one tone Uh I have I'm a tiny bit higher pitched than her (laughs) <laughs> so it is yeah it kind of it lives out my Daria fantasies really well yeah no I'm really really pleased and it, I think people keep saying really nice things about MC and it makes me feel like valuable which is nice I think it's a great model for how a different kind of comedy night can work people are informed by the title that it's not going to be filled with arseholes mm. <laughs> and People therefore buy into the concept of the night. They're not being ushered there to be like, oh, you can see someone you've seen somewhere else. A lot of the people who are on aren't like incredibly well-known comedians or anything. They're all like great and and competent and stuff, but they're not famous. And that means that people can sort of not get, you know, that feel, I mean, you'll you'll know this intimately, that feeling of like comedy nights where everyone's like, it's so competitive and it's so like masculine and everyone's got to get loads of laughs and it's very... It's almost very sports-like, like you're doing some sort of Olympic competition and you want to get more points on your thing than everyone else so that you mm. win the night. Yeah, I know that feeling. It's just pushed in your direction. It makes everyone It makes everyone feel so much calmer. Yeah, I think what we want is for everyone to do well and everyone to feel great. I think like something that's really important to us is like the idea that it could be your first gig but we'll treat you really nicely. We'll not make you feel inexperienced. You know, hopefully we'll like give you a good, like a good first gig. So you want to keep doing it, especially for women. Cause we just want more. I think a lot more have come out of the, uh, out of the woodwork. Like a lot of people who want to try things and they might come and not do it again, but it's a good chance to kind of give, give people a really good experience so they can come do well, get a bit yeah. of money and then not think, Oh, I'm not going to do that again. That was fucking horrible. Yeah. So it's kind of like a creating the right temperature environment for like growth of of like new underrepresented comedians. I mean that said it's still 
I think we do have like quite an issue in terms of like achieving the representation we want because of mm. finances, because we don't make a lot of money. We can't, and the Northeast comedy scene is amazing, but it is very white. It's incredibly white. Yeah. So it's very hard to then, you know, we want to diversify our lineups, but we're going to have to start fundraising to do that. So we're not there completely, but I like what we do. I think that your night creates a real good model for how stuff like that can start to be done and make those environments welcome to people who are, might be a bit skittish about the idea of trying comedy. Yeah. Comedy's terrifying. That's what we re- It is so scary. It's really scary. I've been doing it for, like, on and off. Like, I wouldn't say I'm, like, a... I'm not very driven. Like, I definitely, it's definitely not what I want to do for my grown-up job. I've just been doing it for ages because I love it. But I've been doing it for eight years. Getting on for nine years, that's disgusting. But I don't know. It's uh, there's so many nights that I just find really disheartening. Like I've done alternative comedy nights where I've been heckled by the MC about my tits. Like, right. yeah, it's just rubbish. But I, yeah, I hope we do it forever. We really want to start doing it a bit more in London, and maybe. Well, I want to do it more. I'd rather focus it in the north of London, and I think it's always great to have nights for alternative comics in the north because there's such a thriving scene i definitely feel an affinity with all weird northern comedians yeah like i feel like we're a big gang which makes me feel really cool even though i live in london but it makes me very feel very cool and part of something so i hope we can do things i'd like to start doing them in manchester um but in places where we i can like we can get more people yeah from these like smaller like there's these weirdo comedian diasporas around the north just the best absolute best mandatory redistribution party was created and produced by sean morley and jack evans our title theme was created by ella jean with additional music by sean morley we still have some live shows coming up one on the 27th of november at the pier hat in manchester and one on the 2nd of december at Bolshevism comedy club in leeds Attend if you so wish. And as ever, tell your friends to like, subscribe, review us. Uh, You know the drill. Help. (laughs) Help us, please. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Sorry. Sorry. Goodbye.